Wednesday night we've had. I find it ironic that, like, of all the Wednesday nights, this is the nicest Wednesday night we've had in forever, and people are still trailing in. It's like it's too nice. You don't want to go inside. So, we good? We're rolling? All right, so, okay, sounds good. All right, so here we are. We have exactly five Wednesday nights left uh, for this year. And so next week, we have got uh, two chapters. And then we'll go one chapter, one chapter, one chapter uh, to the end. So I will say, because you guys are the best students, uh, best participants, because you're in here on time, I, right now, this is a um, very early prediction of where we're going to go next year. Um, right now, I'm actually leaning towards doing both Luke and Acts. I can definitely change that, but that's where I'm kind of leaning. Uh, the, the idea behind that would be, one, it'll be fun to go and do another gospel right after we just did this one. And then to see Luke acts as one unit would be fun to do. Um, it would be a lot of content, but I think it would, I think it would actually help us see uh, what Luke is trying to do in his large volume that is Luke and Acts. So you can let that roll around in your brains for a while. I'd actually really thought for a hard minute about doing Matthew again. So I thought maybe it might lose some people, but maybe, maybe that'd be okay. <laughs> None of you, obviously, because you're all here on time, ready to go. Um, we lost our, lost our little thingy here. All right, let's pray, and then let's get into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. Of course, we thank you that we can be here together, and each one of these nights is a gift, and so we thank you for that gift. I thank you for the individuals that uh, make the choice and the commitment to come and to be present and to be engaged uh, with each other and with you and this gospel, and we just pray that you would be leading and guiding us, that you'd helping us to discern uh, what you are communicating through this gospel and what Matthew is trying to communicate through his retelling of the life and teaching of Jesus. So be with our time, be with our discussion, and uh, yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are uh, end of 22 and through uh, all of 23. Um, for, yeah, I think I'm going to actually start in 34 because, well, you'll see. Uh, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. 
saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, Psalm, uh, this is uh, from Psalm 1, uh, 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he, is, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, so do and observe whether they tell you, whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself or herself will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he or she becomes a proselyte, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, they are bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar... They are bound by their oath. You blind people, for which is greater the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are 
sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I, gather, would I have gathered your children un- together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus left the temple. Okay. So, again, what I want to remind us of is when we started back um, previously, a while back, that we had this large section about uh, the importance of authority and who has authority within the kingdom of God and who is in authority. And so Matthew is continuing to put together this conversation and this narrative of who has ultimate authority. Because what he's trying to do is show that Jesus has ultimate authority. Likewise, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, this conversation about how the gospel of Matthew, the ark is starting to pick up speed and Jesus is starting to become more and more direct and uh, some would say aggressive, because he knows what needs to happen when he's in Jerusalem. He knows that he needs to be crucified in order for that to happen. He has to poke the bear and get them to do what he wants them to do, which is to crucify him. So notice how he is becoming far more assertive with his approach to the Pharisees. And we see this really in Uh, the beginning of this section that we're dealing with tonight, not this larger section in this particular section we're dealing with tonight. Because what what do you notice right at the beginning? So he gives this command, you know, he talks about the commandments. He's been asked this question. And then what is his response that is so shocking to us? What does he do? Before that, yes, he asked them a question. Notice how Jesus, they've been asking him the questions, and now he goes on the offensive and asks them a question. And he sets them up with this question. And the question is about David. And notice what the question is about. Who is is the son, where does the Christ's family relationship originate? Because one way to look at the Gospel of Matthew is to literally look at it as this mirrored image. And so what we have at the beginning of the Gospel, we see almost mirrored at the end of the Gospel. And so this section right here in this big teaching that we just 
went through with the, all the woes and then moving forward seems to be a mirrored image of what is happening within the Sermon on the Mount. So in essence, what he is doing in the woes become almost this antithetical representation of the Beatitudes. And if you remember back to the very beginning of Matthew, what was the big question? When, when Jesus is tempted or tested, what is Satan trying to figure out? See, this is why we should just do Matthew all over again next year. See, this would be a perfect example. So remember, one of the questions that, that is in the testing of Jesus is Satan is asking Jesus, in essence, do you really believe that you are God's son? Do you really believe that you hold the position of the son of God? And all three of the tests originate around that question. Well, right here, Jesus asks, whose son is the Christ? And he sets him up. And, it, and then they talk about David. And he says, well, then why is it that David, when he writes Psalm 110, talks about the Christ being his Lord? And notice, it's a very short conversation. They had no idea how to respond to him. And so this is like the ultimate mic drop for the rest of Matthew, except he just keeps talking. Because no one else is going to ask him really another question until we get to the end and the charges that are brought before him and Jesus' response, well, we'll get there. So then he goes into this, this big teaching section. Yes? So, uh, in essence, what does it mean that David was in the Spirit? It means that he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. Yes. Because how would David, and in essence, that's the idea behind David's vision of what is coming in his writing of the Psalms about, you know, the futuristic prophetic Psalms about who the Lord is. So, you know, that gets into an interesting conversation around. We often talk about how the Holy Spirit doesn't arrive until the, the Pentecost, except it's all over the Old Testament. So. so then Jesus goes and he gets into this big teaching. And one thing we want to make for certain is who is he addressing? Who is the first group that he is addressing? The crowds and the disciples. Who did he address in the Sermon on the Mount? Right, exactly. And so this idea of the crowd functioning as a one singular character uh, is continuing to be brought forth within uh, the gospel here. So what he is saying is being said, first and foremost, to the disciples and to the crowds that are there. Now, certainly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they haven't left the scene. Matthew tells us that they're still very much engaged 
in this conversation. And he starts by talking, saying something very interesting. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, which is true. They hold the religious authority that Moses' seat would have. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Which has us scratch our head and say, we so often can get led down this path of demonizing the law. And in particular, when we talk about how the law functions, this part this week fits so perfectly within Paul's letter to the Galatians as we talk about how the law functions and what the law is supposed to be doing. And so Jesus here has a perfect opportunity to say, disregard everything that they're teaching you. Except that's not what he says. Because Jesus has a very high view of the law, and he is not concerned with degrading the law. He's concerned with fulfilling the law. And so he instructs the crowds and the disciples that they are to observe the law. And sometimes we just miss that. We just skip right over it. Even when Paul talks about the law in Galatians, which we'll get to, it's interesting that we don't distort our view of the law and then read into the, Paul's letter our distortion of the law. But we're in Matthew, so let's keep going. What is the biggest problem that's happening? Chairs are falling over. Pets' heads are falling off. Um, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach but they do not practice. And then Jesus proceeds to go on to talk about what is happening with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And it becomes this interesting question around what do we do when somebody is teaching the truth of God's word and then we find out, or maybe we know in that case, that, that their life might not match up with what they're teaching. And how do we proceed with the teaching that has come from that person? So Jesus has this interesting conversation about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, through these woes, how they're living is not reputable. How they're living is, is not something that someone should try and mirror or mimic. What they're teaching, though, is of utmost importance. And Jesus says, do what they say, but don't do what they do. What are they doing? And then he goes on to expand. So in essence, this singular sentence, for they preach but do not practice, is the thesis statement of this teaching, and then he just goes on to elaborate over and over and over and over and over again, seven times, what they exactly are doing. Well, first of all, they're tying up heavy burdens on the people. They're not willing to do it themselves. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their outward religious things big and extravagant. They love the place of importance. 
They love the title of who they are and the praise that they get when they're out in public. They love the name and the title that they receive. And if you've been with this, you know that this is not a new concept for Jesus. You know, if we go, if we just keep going back, back to chapter 18, and we talked about the least of these. Well, John talked about the least of these, and we talked, we've been talking about the function of importance within the religious system within the world and within the kingdom of God and how those are complete opposites of one another. And so here, Jesus is calling out these individuals and their behavior because they are doing the opposite. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees are lumping on something additional. They like to be seen they don't like to be humble. They like to be praised for their title. And I know this becomes a really challenging thing for us. And it's been a challenging thing for me for, from the very beginning. And, and people, it, it, it's tricky. Because people will refer to me, they'll say, Pastor Eric. And I just want to say, my name is Eric. And I think I've told this story before. I was in uh, Costco, and I was in the checkout line. This is five, five, six years ago. And the person's checking out my groceries. It was before self-checkout. Seriously, I don't get it. And somebody is checking out a few rows over from me, and we say hi, and then she's leaving, and she says, see you later, Padre. And the person checking out my groceries said, you're a priest? Does it look like I'm a priest? No, I'm not a priest. Okay, good. Good. Of course. I slid them my business card. I said, I, I work at Timberwood Church. We'd love to have you Sunday morning. Um, no, I, no, I didn't. Um, that was lying. I, sorry, forgive me. I was, no. The point is, though, these people love their titles. They want to be important. They want to be seen as important. They want to have this authority and reverence from the people. And Jesus is saying that is a problem. And so why is it that we love to have titles and authority and, and, and people to call us certain things because we like the status that comes along with it. And Jesus is saying, if I've said it once, I've said it a few times, status is not important in the kingdom of God. And here again, he says it again, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And the person who humbles themselves will be exalted. So it's this reverse relationship of power and authority and title within the kingdom of God that Jesus is flipping upside down. And how easily we get drawn back into it. And we get drawn back into people who have power and authority and status. And Nick used to drive Nikki absolutely 
bonkers. When in college, we went to Central Baptist Church, and we volunteered there. And at the time, Representative John Thune went to church there, and oftentimes we would be at the same service, and I would want to say hi to him. And she's like, he doesn't even know you. I'm like, but he's our representative. We only have one. He's important. And now he's Senator Thune. I'm like, well, but his name is John. Well, we don't address him as John. We address him always as Senator We want power through titles. And Jesus is saying, no, no. Furthermore, what are the Pharisees doing? They're adding on to the gospel. And what they're adding on is a problem. And it's so perfect because this week in Galatians, we start talking about how Paul is writing this letter and saying you can't add on to the gospel. And that's what they're doing. They want to be fancy. They want to be seen. And they add these things on. And Jesus says, that's not going to be a good idea. And it's interesting when he talks about these these adornments that they wear. And and the question becomes, is this Jesus' polemic against wearing Christian attire? You know, like a cross or like, I love Jesus, do you? Or, you know, fish on your car or whatever. And it's not necessarily that. The problem with these individuals is they're making them bigger. You know, so it's one thing to, like, wear a cross under your shirt. Then it's another thing to have, like, a Flava Flav-type cross. He had a clock, but, you know, a cross that says, I'm going to heaven, are you? That's, like, a different thing. And so that's what Jesus is saying. These people, they aren't doing what they have been preaching Remember, for they preach, but they do not practice. And he reminds them, as he's continued to remind them, that those in my kingdom will be servants. Those will be humbled. And then he goes into this giant list. And depending on how you count it, it's seven woes. And it's interesting because last week we had seven brothers for one bride. And now we have seven woes for the Pharisees. Another thing before we get into the woes is Jesus is addressing a specific group. They are in Jerusalem. And so the Pharisees that are in Jerusalem are like the top Pharisees. And so we want to caution ourselves from making this blanket statement about all Pharisees. Because he's not addressing all Pharisees. Throughout all of Judaism, he is addressing the Pharisees that he is engaging with in Jerusalem. That's very important. Uh, Isn't that who you mentioned, John? Yes? Yes. Was there a, that that was the question? Nicodemus, Pharisee? 
Was he, was he here listening to this? We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us that he's there, and so it would be hard for us to imply out of silence that he is there. He could be there, but we can't say with certainty that he is there. And, and if he was there, it becomes a little bit like the teacher who's addressing the class for misbehavior. And like, hypothetically speaking, there's one kid that's really good, and the teacher's like, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and then that kid goes home like, we got yelled at, I didn't even do anything. Well, if it doesn't apply to you, then you shouldn't feel bad about it. So, the seven woes. What is the common occurrence? Well, the common occurrence is how he groups them together and this this categorization of hypocrites. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And again, they, he goes on to talk through that and become more and more specific about that. And so it brings up this very interesting uh, point about what is the problem and why does Jesus continue to address them in this rote phrase? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's like this doubling down of who they are. Again, it's because the, the Pharisees are saying, these are the things that you need to be doing, and yet they're not doing them. And so, we can get hung up around using this word hypocrite or using this word around hypocrisy, and, and we want to be very clear about what we mean. Jesus, when he is speaking and using that term, what he means is the Pharisees are saying, you need to do this, X, and we will do not X. Likewise, Paul in Galatians talks about this. You say do one thing and you do another. So the teachers are saying do this thing, but they are unwilling to do that thing. Now, the challenge around this is not everything we tend to think of hypocrisy is hypocrisy. So the example uh, becomes, um, let's say I say to Dave over there, for you at home, there's no Dave over there. Um, let's say, I'm sorry, there is a Dave in the room. Nathan over there, there's no Nathans in the room. Nathan comes to me and he's, he's really upset because, you know, he's just having all this problem you know, sleeping, and he's really stressed out because X, Y, and Z, and, and, you know, he's just super worked up and worried. And I say to him, well, Jesus, Jesus says that you shouldn't worry, and you just cast all your cares on him, and, and you know, you, at night you should do this, and, you know, before you go to bed you can try this, and, and then do this, and 
and pray about this and do all those things. It's going to work. Meanwhile, I'm over here, up half the night, tossing and turning, wringing my hands, pulling out my hair, saying, why God, worried and, and amped up and anxious about all these same things, and I'm unwilling to do what the exact same thing that I'm telling Nathan that he should be doing. So that's what hypocrisy is. Saying this is what this person should do and being unwilling to do it oneself. The challenge is that actually can be me. I love that sometimes I say things like that I mean to be funny and no one laughs and then I say something very vulnerable and revealing and you just can't help but laugh. I know the right answer and I'm certain that there are times when I say the right thing and I'm unwilling to do the right thing. And I am hypocritical. And for that, I'm sorry. And I need your forgiveness. And you're like, we didn't even know you did. <laughs> Trust me, I guarantee it's happened. It's happened. These people, they don't care. They have no interest in forgiveness. They think because of who they are and the status that they have, they are in and they can do whatever they want. And Jesus is saying, no. If you're going to say something, you have to be willing to do that thing. And if you're not willing to do that thing, then you shouldn't be saying that thing. Now, in this instance, with Nathan, Nathan comes to me and he says these things, and I come alongside of him, and I say, Nathan, I understand what you mean. I, too, have a hard time with that and struggle with that. That's a completely different scenario. It becomes challenging, though, when we aren't interested in certain people being true and real and vulnerable. And we've had the, I've had the responders and various people at various times about, you know, in particular, we talk about our first responders and, and, and we, don't, you know, we don't want, you know, hypothetically speaking, if there was a police officer here, we don't want a police officer to be vulnerable when our life is on the line. If my house is on fire and Nisswa Fire Department is called to my house, I don't want them to be vulnerable and say, Phew, yeah, Phew. sorry, can't go because that's dangerous and I'm just not ready for that. No, I want them to come save me. So then how do we create space within this world of life to be vulnerable and to acknowledge the challenges that we have so that we don't find ourselves being led into hypocrisy because we have to hide our true selves and what we're truly struggling with. And it, 
and it comes in this relationship, hypothetical relationship with Nathan, and it comes in our relationships with each other. And so how do we become vulnerable with each other and so that we don't become hypocritical and we tell our friends, well, just do this, and then we're unwilling to do that same thing in our own lives when we encounter the exact same thing. And so these woes are for real. He says, Woe to you, for you travel across sea and land to make a single follower. That's what a proselyte is. And that person, you make them twice as much a child of hell. (laughs) Again, you want to talk about fighting words and provoking? Like, Jesus is provoking. Because what they are getting them to do and to follow is far more destructive than the path that they're on. Remember uh, a while back, again, back in 18, when we were talking, John was talking about when you lead uh, one of the least of these astray, when you lead a little one astray, what should you do? Be better if you tie the millstone around your neck. That's the same language that Jesus, it's it's coming back up. And then he talks about this idea of, of swearing because, you know, we, we don't speak the truth all the time, right? That's accurate. How do we know this? Because we have phrases, honestly. Well, to tell you the truth, truth be told, well, I'm going to level with you and tell you like it is, which tells us that we have so allowed non-truthfulness to become a part of our vernacular. And, and so now we have to have this idea of, you know, making an oath on the temple. And Jesus is like, just when you say something, just do that thing. Remember back when he was talking about the two sons and the one said, yeah, dad, I'll, uh, I'm not going to go and then went, and then the other one said, yeah, I'll go, and then doesn't go, and Jesus has some words uh, for the Pharisees about that. Similar idea. And then he says this interesting thing. And this is, this is again, why I wanted us to start back in uh, 34. He says in verse 23, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Interesting spice combination, by the way. Sounds like it'd probably be good on, like, you know, a lamb shank. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, what did he just say is the most important part of the law? Back here, first commandment, second commandment. And then he follows that up by talking about the weightier part of the law. What is the weightier part of the law? Right, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And so Jesus is saying, you do all the right things. You do all the performative things that are supposed to be right. You give what you're supposed to give. 
You do what you're supposed to do, except you miss the most important parts of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. And I know we, sometimes we hear these conversations and we're like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about the justice system and how the justice system functions. And I don't want to talk about the importance of mercy in the kingdom of God. I want to talk about retribution and retaliation and, you know, all of these things that are so of the world. And Jesus says, I don't care what you do, in essence, on a Sunday morning, if what you're neglecting is the most important parts of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so when we have this innate response to somebody who wants to have a conversation about the importance of justice and mercy, we need to ask ourselves, Is that part of my flesh or is that part of the Spirit of God in me that doesn't want to talk about this or wants to attack the person that's talking about the importance of these things? Because Jesus says, save all these things. It's not about the mint and the dill and the cumin. It's about justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's not about what comes out of your mouth. It's about what you do with your life. It's not about what we say. It's about what we do. What we say is important. However, if that is incongruent with what we're doing, that's a problem. And then he says, You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And this imagery of being so, so focused on a tiny little thing that we miss the bigger things. And how, how often is that the case? We get so focused on the tiniest little thing, we miss out on the gargantuan thing. You know, and we joke about, about so many of these different things, right? Like, if you move, you know, too rhythmically to the music, oof, we have a problem. And yet, we neglect all of these major things. And then he just keeps going and he talks about the importance. You, know, you clean the outside, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Again, what you do is, a, is important. He says, you are whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. And then he just keeps going. You build these 
tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments, except you admit that you also were the ones that killed the prophets. Your fathers were the ones that killed the prophets. You are serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And this sticks in my craw because remember two weeks ago, I was like, well, wait a second. He said, you're going to get in just not right away on the front side because those people are going to go in first. And then here he's like, "Um, I'm not sure how you're going to get out of this. And we scratch our heads and we say, what's going on here? And he goes through this whole history, and you know, as he talks about you know, sending the prophets and the wise men and the scribes and that they killed them, what did we immediately think of? The parable last week that Amy was talking about in the vineyard and how the, the landowner sent these people and they killed them. And Jesus is saying, yes, you are those people. You have done these things. And the righteous blood shed on earth is on you. And he says, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Where else does the righteous blood of Abel appear in the New Testament? Yeah, right, Bible babble. It appears in Hebrews when the righteous blood of Abel is crying out from the ground to God. And and the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jesus right here in this moment. Because Jesus is like, you've had all these opportunities and what have you done? You You have killed these people and this righteous blood is on your hands and what is the echo of that coming forward we just talked about it last week on Thursday night Pilate says the blood of Jesus is not on my hands it's on your hands and they say yes and this lament over Jerusalem is this overarching conclusion to this big idea that Jesus has been wrestling with. And Jesus is so upset with these people because they have taken the sacred city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here represents really the Jewish population. And they have taken them and they have taken them to this place where they don't even recognize the Messiah. And Jesus is lamenting over the city that is supposed to be a certain way and they are a different way, and they are killing the prophets because they don't want to hear the words that they need to hear. And likewise, these people are unable and unwilling to hear the words of Jesus. And notice this fascinating imagery. And I know we've talked about this. There are these interesting images that take place within, throughout the Bible, that give Jesus this motherly picture. And this is one of them. That he desires to gather under his wings the little hens that are the people of Israel, except they're unwilling. They're unwilling to come under the protection of Jesus, the Messiah, 
And he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus lays down this very interesting, scathing part. And then he walks away. You can go to your groups. Feel free to combine groups if you please.